This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. As the Baghdad bureau chief for the Washington Post, our guest today, Rashif Chandrasekharan, has probably spent more time in U.S.-occupied Iraq than any other American journalist. In his new book, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, Chandrasekharan looks at Baghdad's green zone into a bubble cut off from wartime realities where the task of reconstructing a devastated nation competed with incompetence, petty partisanship, patronage, and corruption. Chandra Sekharan is now an assistant managing editor of the Washington Post and heads the Post's continuous news department, which reports and edits breaking news stories for WashingtonPost.com. He will be speaking at UCI this Thursday, November 16th, from 5 to 6 p.m. as part of the International Studies Program Fall Series. Rashif Chandra Sekharan, welcome to Weekly Signals. It's good to be here with you. Oh, it's nice to have you with us. How are you today? I'm, I'm, I'm quite well and looking forward to my trip out west. Oh, very good. Well, it's raining here today, and I, I just want to be sure it's not raining there, because we, we have to have a balance on the coast. At least that's what I found. <laughs> it's cold and miserable, I'm sure. It's much nicer over there. <laughs> very good. Now, tell us, uh, you went into the Green Zone. That was in April of 2003? That was my first, uh, yes. I, I uh, returned to Baghdad in April 2003 uh-huh. and stayed in Iraq for the better part of 18 months, and I made my first visit inside what would become the Green Zone uh, on the 11th of April, 2003. That was just two days after the statue of Saddam was pulled down. And over the next 18 months, I probably went into the Green Zone uh, multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. So I, I really was, was, was exposed to what life was like inside that bubble. And I uh, just, just to be clear to you and your readers, I lived outside. I lived in what the Americans called the Red Zone, across the river, across the Tigris River, that is, in a neighborhood with Iraqi families very close to Baghdad's mm. university. Now, did you have any expectations when you went there? Did you think it might be a uh, – well, did it live up to your expectations? How about that? Well, you know uh, – there are multiple ways to answer that question. Uh-huh. When you look at the overall situation, I, I did have an expectation that the uh, Americans who would come to Iraq to reconstruct and govern the country, these are the civilians, not the soldiers, but the, the civilian reconstruction personnel, that they, would, um, that they would listen to the Iraqis, that they would work with them, that it would be a participatory process, uh, that it would be an Iraqi-led process, and that um, uh, it, would, it would result in real, a meaningful change. And instead, uh, quite a number of the Americans who showed up with this very important task were, A, not really qualified to do the jobs, uh, and B, they set themselves up in the green zone, and they, they really isolated themselves in this bubble, you know, a bubble that was really cut off from what Baghdad and Iraq writ large was really like. Uh, you know, inside the green zone, there was 24-hour-a-day electricity. On the outside, you were lucky to get four or six hours. You know, on the inside, 
everything worked. Uh, you know, everybody drove around in brand new Chevy Suburbans. On the outside, it was chaos. You know, on the inside, um, there were bars and discos and gymnasiums, and there was Bible study classes and salsa dancing classes, and there were Chinese restaurants and a cafe, and people would sit outside and drink and smoke into the evening and lounge around by a, the pool. On the outside, people would lock themselves in their houses because they were afraid of, of looters and bandits and insurgents. Uh, it, was, it was like you blasted off from Iraq and landed on another planet when you went into the Green Zone. Let me, I want to ask a very basic question here. When the United States went into Iraq, given that they ex- the expectations that we were led to believe would be that we would be greeted as liberators and the flowers and all of that, what was the mentality behind even establishing a green zone to start with? What Was that always the plan from the beginning, or was there some realization very early on that they needed to have this kind of imperial palace within, within Iraq? That's a really good question. You know, there would always have to be some sort of headquarters zone, some place where the, the hundreds and it grew to thousands of American civilians would be able to set up shop. Now, there were many Americans in that first wave of Reconstruction personnel who wanted to be set up in a hotel or in an abandoned military base or even near Baghdad's airport. They, they did not like the idea of moving into the Republican palace, of taking over a palace of the tyrant, and they, they thought it would have a very negative uh, uh, connotation. Uh, the, the symbolism would be very, very uh, uh, negative to the Iraqi people. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, the military sort of force protection uh, officers won over, and they they argued uh, successfully that the the safest place was the green zone because in Saddam's day he had he had really walled off a perimeter that that was very vast around it. The green zone was a seven square mile area, so there was a, a big setback, so you didn't have to worry about the sorts of attacks you might have to worry about if you were in downtown Baghdad in a hotel. Well, and I want to go back to those early days. You you, you mentioned being there right after the. Uh as the uh, statue of Saddam came down. Was it obvious right away, based on a couple of very important events during the course of the, the uh, takeover of Baghdad, the looting of the uh, all, all of the museums and all the different uh, hospitals and all the rest of the looting, the massive looting that went on, was that part of a dynamic in which they said, well, wait a minute, there's too much chaos, uh, we, we need to establish this, or or was it already starting to become part of the the uh, the mindset I, I think the decision to establish it predates the chaos okay. uh, it was done um, uh, while the ground war was still going on but obviously uh, the chaos that ensued after the liberation of Iraq I think just reinforced the arguments to to, to set uh, set up in a uh, uh, in, in, a, in a bubble like that. And, I, you know, one point that, that's worth uh, remembering is that back then, the chaos really wasn't directed at Americans. It was a lot of Iraqi on Iraqi violence and thievery because there were not enough American forces to restore order in Baghdad. Uh, but that didn't mean that the American civilians who were there in those first months were at any great risk. They could have gotten out and about. They could have done more traveling around the country to interact with Iraqis. But they chose to really uh, spend a lot of their time uh, sequestered inside the bubble. Was there one event 
that that or was it just a series of events that caused the people to really begin to turn on the United States? I think there were a series of key events, uh, and a couple of which are fairly well known. The Ambassador L. Paul Bremer's decision to disband the Iraqi army, then the subsequent decision to fire many mid-level members of the Ba'ath Party from their government jobs, uh, and then uh, the, the decision by the U.S. government and the government of Great Britain to go to the United Nations Security Council and get the Security Council to authorize essentially an open-ended occupation in Iraq. And, and all of a sudden, almost overnight, it turned the Americans from beloved liberators right. to despised occupiers. The Iraqis were, were, you know, they didn't like the term occupation. They, they wanted to be free of their dictator, but they didn't like the idea that a foreign military force was going to rule them for some undetermined period of time. And when the Iraqis kept asking, how long are you going to be here? The Americans never had a very good answer. They couldn't say one year or two years. They kept sort of vaguely saying, oh, we won't be here a day longer than necessary. Well, to the Iraqis, they didn't know if that meant five years or ten years. It fueled conspiracy theories, and it, it, it really angered people in a way that we needn't have angered them. I'm just going to jump to a uh, fellow by the name of Jay, is it Halen? Helen. Helen. Yes, uh, here's somebody who's brought in, it sounds like fresh out of college, to run the stock exchange in Iraq. Can you talk a little bit about that and then tell us what sort of policy would allow such a thing to happen? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to disparage uh, college students or recent graduates, uh, <laughs> no, yes. but, but <laughs> however, <laughs> however, you know, you would think that the job of reopening Iraq's stock exchange would at least go to somebody who had spent some time working in the financial services industry in the United States. Uh, <laughs> but no, it went to a 24-year-old kid who had never worked in the financial sector. Um, but he was a loyal Republican. He had applied for a job at the White House, and, and he got the job. Um, you know, the, the challenge of rebuilding and governing post-war Iraq, you might think, would lead the government to really bring in the best and the brightest, people who spoke Arabic, people who had spent time in the Middle East, people who were specialists in post-conflict reconstruction. But no, in many cases, the Bush administration sent over simply the loyal and the willing. What seemed to be most important to the people doing the hiring was political loyalty. Um, and so uh, instead of scouring the private sector and, and the government and non-governmental organizations for talent, uh, instead... The people doing the hiring at the Pentagon turned to Republican offices on Capitol Hill, conservative think tanks, and other parts of the Bush administration. And just to make sure that they got the right people out there, uh, candidates were asked in their pre-deployment interviews questions like, who did you vote for in the 2000 presidential election? Right. Are you a member of the Republican Party? What are your views on Roe versus Wade? And I, I put oh. to you, you know, what, what does one's views on abortion, pro-choice or pro-life, have to do with rebuilding a war-torn nation? That whole action, though, seems idiotic to me. I, I don't know how else to put it, that we've put leaders but in consistent. power that, that would make a decision based on Roe versus Wade if they're choosing someone to run a stock exchange. Isn't that very consistent, though, with, with what we know about yeah. the, the Bush administrations on other things like FEMA, FEMA. FEMA as in a great example? You might oh. be asking, wondering why. Why would they do such a thing? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there are a couple of answers to this. The first is, uh, I think that there was a belief at senior levels of the administration, that 
the reconstruction of Iraq would be a fairly easy thing. It would be like the invasion of Iraq, which took three weeks. And so this would be a ideal resume padding exercise for a lot of party loyalists. They could say they spent some time out in Baghdad, be part of the great success, and it would help them in later life. Um, I also think that there was a view that if things did not go so well, if you had a bunch of loyalists, you wouldn't have to worry about them coming back and doing these kiss-and-tell books uh, or giving lots of critical interviews. And in fact, that's, you know, that, that has been true. There, there are no CPA insiders who have really written revealing insider accounts. My book is the first, and mine, mine relies on a lot of people who worked there who eventually became disillusioned enough to speak, many of them speaking on the condition of anonymity. But other than mine, um, you really don't have a lot of insider accounts by people who were there inside the palace. Was the, was the decision to uh, disband the Iraqi army the single most devastating decision made? I think it was one of many devastating decisions. It's hard to point to the series of big mistakes and say this one was worse than any other. Mm. Um, you know, I, I certainly understand a lot of the counter-arguments. You know, mm. the army was bloated with generals. It was filled with Shiite conscripts who didn't want to continue fighting. Um, you know, the army wasn't all that well trained. In fact, they were defeated in three weeks. So it's, it's hard to say that mm. these guys would have been the solution to go after the insurgency. But, you know, had you kept them around, you probably returned many of them or kept many of them from becoming enemies. I, um, yeah. and, and you would have been able to screen and vet some people. Uh, I think it made matters worse. I, I, I'm not sure that that or any of the others you can point to and say this was the one particular fatal shot. Right. Well, I guess you could say that keeping them from joining the uh, – giving what however hundreds of thousands of these guys were out there who had weapons – and who had suddenly no visible means of support, and and who could train their anger on a particular source, which was the United States. I, I want to ask you then, uh, just going taking that point a little further, was the mere fact that we invaded Iraq was that was that going to trigger the inevitable, which is what we're seeing today—a sectarian, violent society, sort of hell bent to for, on a civil war. Another good question, and I think that, you know, there are a lot of people out there today that are saying this was doomed from the start. And I think that there's a lot of credence to that argument. I, I've argued in my book, and I, and I believe that had we done the occupation differently, in fact, had we not had a formal occupation, had we put Iraqis out front, had we provided the necessary resources to help rebuild the nation, had, um, had, we, had we had a real post-war transition plan ready uh, before the invasion began. Had we done many of the most basic things, had we not disbanded the army or engaged in debathification the way we did, I would like to think that uh, things would not be as bad as they are today. Would there still be something of a sectarian conflict? Yes. Would there still be an insurgency driven by dead-enders who saw no room for compromise? Yes. But would they both be smaller and more possibly containable? I think so. Uh, but I think that you would have always had some degree of sectarian tension. And I think what, what was necessary was from the very beginning to have understood that and to have pursued policies that were mindful of that. Instead, as I write in my book, I think that there were a number of things that the American Occupation Authority did that exacerbated sectarian tensions as opposed to trying to quell them. We're speaking with Rajiv Chandrasekharan. The book is Imperial Life in the Emerald City. You've said that people in positions of power there, the people running the Green Zone 
are, were primarily brought in for party loyalty. And, and since we just had an election, which pretty much turned the other party into power, what do you think uh, life in the green zone's like right now, and what's it going to be like next year when the, when the Democrats are in power? Do you think there's going to be a major shift? Well, fortunately, uh, life in the green zone has already changed a bit. Once okay. the occupation authority dissolved and, and it was replaced by an American embassy, um, you wound up getting rid of a lot of those political hacks, and they were replaced by career uh, American diplomats, people who are nonpartisan, or at least people who don't sort of wear their political affiliation on their sleeve, people who have uh, worked in other parts of the world, uh, some more people who speak Arabic. So I think that there's already been a change. Um, I think now the big challenge for the Democrats is what's the Iraq policy? And yeah. the Democratic Party has been fairly divided on this issue. You have people ranging from John Murtha and uh, Carl Levin on one side to Hillary Clinton and Joe, uh, Joe um, Lieberman. Lieberman on the other, uh, and, you know, Biden somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and so now, you know, the first challenge is going to be for the Democrats to get on the same page. And then it's, it's going to be a question of, you know, how do you implement it? But there's no good answer here. I mean, I think part of what we saw at the polls on Tuesday was people going and voting for Democrats because they were upset at the current policy. But it wasn't like they were affirmatively voting for a different policy. Uh, and the Democrats never really articulated a cohesive vision because there really is no real good solution to this. Every approach that we may take at this point is fraught with, with some degree of peril. Do you have any uh, reservations about the, uh, the uh, resignation of Donald Rumsfeld? And the uh, and Gates now and the effect it'll have the Secretary well, of State or Secretary of Defense. I th I think you know what we will see uh, perhaps is senior military officials being a little bit more willing to speak their mind and um, and being and, and I think a, a greater willingness from the Pentagon to embrace new ideas. You know, there's this Iraq study group chaired by former Secretary of State Jim Baker. Yeah. Uh, you know, Baker and Gates are old pals. And so I think that, you know, you'll clearly see Gates being very receptive to some of the Iraq study group's recommendations in a way that perhaps Rumsfeld would not have been. Is, is this dad writing to the rescue? Is this 41? Well, there, there's certainly a lot of dad involved in all of this. Yeah. I mean, the dad's people involved in all yeah. of this. There's a couple of things. I mean, you're right about the Democrats. They don't seem to have a cohesive plan in place. But isn't it very telling that the Reconstruction effort is really um, kind of taking a, a sharp left turn here? Bechtel's pulling out. You're going to start to see a lot of that kind of thing happen. Isn't that a signal that we really are getting out, is this, seeing the the, uh, the businesses and the, and the Reconstruction and the attempt on the administration to to gut the uh, oversight of the Reconstruction yeah. effort. Is that telling us something we should be uh, paying well, attention to? I think it's telling us that despite billions and billions of dollars that have been spent, the Reconstruction effort has really not accomplished a whole lot. You can, you can point to, to, to various things. You know, X number of schools been repaired. You know, three million Iraqi children immunized. Um, you know, uh, several hundred more megawatts of electricity being produced in a given day. But that hasn't fundamentally changed the equation there. The thinking was that reconstruction was important for the stability of the government and to prevent violence, to, to get Iraq back up on its own two feet. Well, that hasn't occurred. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, 
you know, and, it, and they're it, leaving. They're, they're, and they're leaving. I, I isn't it? You're, you're, <laughs> what you're seeing is an acknowledgement that you know the reconstruction effort on one level, at the tactical level, perhaps it, it has has had successes, individual projects get, uh, that that have been completed, but in an overall strategic sense, uh, it hasn't yet changed the environment in the way that people had hoped. I have one last question, and we're running out of time here, but I, I want something that your book does and that very few uh, reporters have acknowledged, and that is that most of the reporting, most of the reporters are in the green zone, and very, very infrequently do they venture out beyond it. And yet the impression that the American people are left with is that they're doing actual reporting sort of in the field. Do you well, find that – how how is that – how do – how do you feel about that? I, I'm actually going to disagree with you here. Okay. Most of the American reporters in, in Iraq are not based in the green zone. Okay. They're, they're outside the green zone. But they are based in, in hotels and in housing compounds that are surrounded by blast walls. And because they're Americans, their ability to travel is very restricted. And so, yes, we're only getting a small slice of the story out there. Uh, the ability to travel outside of Baghdad is, is almost impossible if you're not going with the military. Um, it, it, you know, it's it's become incredibly difficult to operate as journalists. But it's not because they're all sitting in the green zone, but it is because the security situation is really bad and their ability to get around the city right. is, is really limited. Well, I guess my point in bringing, it up, bringing that up is that it would have been nice to know that all throughout this endeavor, that in fact they are restricted in their ability to find out what's really going on. And I find that that's the part that bothers. Not that they, I don't expect them to risk their life every day. But I would expect us to know that their ability to travel is restricted by virtue of the fact that the country's in chaos. That's a good point. And, I, you know, I think that journalists need to do a better job of saying to readers, telling readers what they don't know or what they can't get. Right. The book is Imperial Life in the Emerald City. Rashid Chandrasekharan, thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals. I had a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to coming to UCI and speaking on Thursday very afternoon. Very good. We'll remind all our listeners. Great. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.